Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we have been following the story of God's people in the Old Testament throughout this sermon series that we continue in this morning. From their slavery in Egypt to the miraculous deliverance in the Exodus to their wilderness wanderings and then their military success against their enemies as they settled in the Promised Land. Now, if you've been here over the course of the last year, you, you, it's pretty clear to you as we've kind of done this. If not, one of the things you need to know is for 500 years, the people of God in the Old Testament lived in the land that God had promised to their father Abraham until their sins began to catch up with them. And God came in an act of judgment and exiled them from the promised land, first the northern tribes into Assyria somewhere around 722 B.C., and then the southern tribes into Babylon in 586 B.C. And in our scriptures, these events happen in 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, and then in the historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and this morning Esther, and then the prophetic books like Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Daniel. All these books take place during this exile of God's people. We said last week, and I would say again, exile is the experience of dislocation and homelessness, The scripture says that all of us in this room, we are strangers and exiles in the world. And so the question for exiles, the question at the end of the book of of Lamentations, which we looked at last week is, is God done with me? Is he angry with me? Has he run out of patience and now I'm on my own? And the painful times in life seem to amplify these thoughts. And if you don't have an answer, you'll flounder. This story of Esther this morning was written to exiles in Israel, excuse me, the exiles of Israel in their exile, and to the exiles gathered in this room this morning to answer these questions and to help us live with the kind of courage God has called us to. Now, a couple of notes. This is one sermon on an entire book, so we're dealing with big themes, big picture, considerations of style and structure of the entire book. We're exegeting the large chunk of this you know, book in the whole Bible, pulling out what the author has put in for us to meditate on. So we're exegeting, we're just not taking... One particular passage, we're taking our cues from the whole text. Uh, I'm going to try to tell the story, referencing the scripture passages that uh, are, are written down there for you or printed there for you, for you to follow along with. This is a very powerful story. I would encourage you, if you've never read the book of Esther, go home this afternoon and do it. Uh, the Jews still to this day read the book of Esther one time a year. They gather all their children in the Feast of Purim. And they read this story, and it's interactive because the, the enemy's name is Haman. And, and Susan Fleming reminded me this morning, whenever the story is read, whenever the word Haman is said, all the children boo. Boo. Right? Haman. Boo. Okay? If you'd like to do that this morning, I won't take offense to that. If not, that's okay too. Terry reminded us that, that those people were not Presbyterians, and so we're a lot less likely to get that kind of interaction from you this morning. But if you'd like to make it fun, you can make it as fun as possible. I'm going to try to tell it and then reference, uh, reference the passages that we've printed for you. Okay, so let's, let's, just, let's just start by looking at this story for just a minute. The story begins with an enemy. Okay, get ready for it. A man named Haman. There, oh, you're going to do it. I like it. That's awesome. Get ready because his name's going to come up a number of times, okay? Haman was a high-ranking official. There you go. In the Persian court, and the king commanded that all the other officials were to bow down before him and to pay him homage whenever he entered the room. And they all did with one exception, the story says. A man named Mordecai, a Jew, refused to bow down and pay homage to Haman. There you go. So this absolutely infuriated this man, so much so that he began to plot not just to kill Mordecai. He learned that Mordecai was a Jew, and so he began to plot genocide. 
he arranged for all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire to be killed by Edict of the King on a certain day at a certain time, and he constructed gallows in his backyard upon which he planned to hang his enemy Mordecai on that day. But Mordecai learned of the plot, and he came up with a plan of his own because, you see, years earlier, his cousin, a girl named Esther, whom Mordecai had raised as his own daughter, had been conscripted into the Persian king's harem. And through a series of unlikely and, I would say, miraculous events, she had been made queen of Persia. So when Mordecai learned of Haman's treachery... There you go. That was a little less enthusiastic, but that's okay. Hang in there. He contacted Esther. He told her that she must use her power and influence to sway the king to save her people, the Jews. And here we pick up in chapter 4 with what's printed for you. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. That's verse 1. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Then Esther called for Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what what this was and why it was. Hatach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay. In, you, weren't, you were unsure about that one, weren't you? <laughs> so, oh, some people just got really embarrassed. Now I can't find my place. I've got to go back and find it. Mordecai uh, he told... Um, where are we? Mordecai told him all that had happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay. There you go. Into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hatach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And then, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai said to them, reply to Esther, do not think that yourself, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Three days later, Queen Esther came before the king, asking if he and Haman, there you go, would come to a feast that she had prepared for them. And that night, that night, upon her request, that night the king couldn't sleep, and so he began to read some of the minutes of his administration, and he came across a record of a situation where Mordecai had overheard the assassination plot against the king, 
and had intervened to save his life. And so the next morning, the king went to the bad guy. I won't say his name. (laughs) His trusted advisor and asked him what he should do to honor the man that he delighted in. Haman, assuming, there you go, assuming the king was talking about him. Of course, he was the man the king delighted to honor. Assuming he was talking about him, suggested such and such. But in fact, it was Mordecai. And what the best part of the story is that Haman was put in charge of the celebration of his mortal enemy. And as if the, his day couldn't get any worse, he's immediately summoned to the feast that Esther has prepared where she discloses the plan to the king. The king is so enraged that he ordered that Haman be hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Yay, right, there you go. The, kid, the boys in the front were like, yay, right? That's, no, that's, what the story, that's how you're supposed to feel when you read this story. And then we pick up. Okay, Mordecai, you know, the bad guy is hanged on the gallows that he prepared for the good guy. This reversal. And then verse 1 of chapter 9, which is printed in your worship folder. Now on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out to, to annihilate the Jews, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And then in verse 20, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Asharis, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Therefore, they called these days Purim. This is God's word. Now, there are three things from this, this beautiful, this great story. It really is a great story. Three things this morning that I want us to see from this book that can be really helpful to us uh, in times of exile. And those, the three things are just this. It really gives us a theological truth. Second thing is it gives us a spiritual discipline. And then thirdly, it points us to a way of life. And so those are the three points for the outline. A theological truth a spiritual discipline, and a way of life. So let's just start with first that the story offers us a theological truth, what the old creeds and the catechisms call the providence of God. But the way that the book of Esther presents it to us is unique and has much to teach us. Um, At one time in my home, not so much anymore, and I look back with great sadness and fondness, we had four kids at one time under the age of six. Uh, And... So as you might imagine, it was constant noise. It really, it still is, I guess, in many ways. Uh, but every now and then, you know, there's just noise, 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 noise all the time with little kids. But then every now and then, you might have these moments of quiet. And I remember Ashley and I would meet on the couch and sigh in relief and enjoy it for about three minutes. And then you start to think, wait a minute, it's too quiet. <laughs> right? Parents, I see parents nodding their heads. And if you have a bunch of kids, one of the unwritten rules of of parenthood is if the children are unsupervised and it's quiet, usually bad things are happening. And so you spring up from the couch and find them cutting their own hair or coloring on the walls or mummifying one another with toilet paper, right, or whatever it might be, okay? Reading this book of Esther is a lot like that experience. There's a loud silence. 
Uh, it's interesting. God is not a part of the story. There's no mention of God at all. His name is not in the book. There's nothing about uh, the church or, or spiritual things. There's a mention of fasting, but that really doesn't have a spiritual connotation. There's no mention of God at all in the entire book, either directly or indirectly. And the Song of Solomon is the only other book in the Bible where this is true. But in this book of Esther, God is completely absent. And the reason the author leaves God out is because this is how it often feels in times like these. Israel has been conquered and exiled from their homeland. They have been carted away from their homes and their fields. The temple has been destroyed. Their, their religious and political life has been obliterated. And now they're being persecuted. They're being hunted. They're being threatened with extermination. And where's God? Why isn't he doing something about all of this? I mean, didn't he say over and over again to his people in the Old Testament that he would fight for them against their enemies? That, he would, that his plan was to bless them and make them a blessing for the entire earth? I mean, what about all of that? You see, that's, that's the crisis of this book, and it's the crisis of our lives. That the first thing Esther would treat, teach us and train us to do is to recognize the voice of unbelief in our own hearts. That when life gets hard, often the very first thing we begin to do is we begin to imagine things as if God is absent. Where's God? Why is, he, why is he letting this happen to me? I mean, tragedy often puts these questions at the forefront of our hearts. Tragedy is like a megaphone that, that begins to shout these questions to us. And it's easy to imagine that God is active and that he's near when things are going well. And, but, but when there's a downturn or when uh, there's pain, when tragedy strikes, we default to thinking of life the way that this book of Esther presents it, with God totally out of the equation. That's unbelief. And it happens rather quickly. Unbelief looks at God through the lens of our circumstances rather than faith, which looks at circumstances through the lens of its theology. And the sin underneath every sin is the sin of unbelief. And so it's a big problem. It's a big problem. It's the, it's the root of all the other problems. It's the root of all the other sin. It's the root of our cynicism and our, and our will and our anger and all of these things we've talked about over the last few weeks. The sin underneath every sin is the sin of unbelief. So the book of Esther is written to and aimed at healing our unbelief with a lesson. And the lesson is just this. That when God appears most absent, he is often most present. When God appears most absent, he's often most present. What we learn quickly in reading this book is that God is very much a part of the story, but he remains on the edges of it. There's a hiddenness to the way God works in this book but also in our lives. John Piper, in one of the more, tweet, one of the more um, quotable tweets uh, that he's done in the last few years, in 2012, he tweeted God, and, it, and it, it became really, you know, it kind of blew up on the internet and everything because it is profound, I think. He said, God is always doing 1,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. God is always doing 1,000 things. In our best days, we're aware of three of them. And the way this book uh, gets into uh, training us to think of life that way is, is first just through the way it uses storytelling and phrasing. But there are a number of, if you read it carefully, there are a number of coincidences uh, that you just can't ignore. So read slowly, read carefully, and you'll see all these things. For example, out of the hundreds of women conscripted into the harem, Esther's chosen to be queen, a Jew. And then there's this crisis, and she's there at the right place at the right time. 
Mordecai just happened to be at the right place at the right time, verse 21 of chapter 2, to overhear the assassination plot which led to the king honoring him. On the night before Esther was set to reveal Haman's plan, the king had a sleepless night. And in his sleeplessness, he got up and began to read the record of Mordecai's warning about the assassination plot. And so even something as simple as a sleepless night. All these, this, the book is filled with these, the people are just at the right place at the right time. So this domino effect begins to happen and things work out the way they're supposed to. And what we're supposed to do is to look at that and say, you know what? Those aren't coincidences. Those are providences. God, is, God there's God at work. In the small details. But even more powerfully than the way the story is told is the way the story uses irony as a literary device. Uh, remember I told you, really it centers around Haman. Haman, this man, and you're, you don't have to boo anymore, okay? So we've read the story. So just make sure everybody's on the same page. I don't want, you know, I don't want awkward, half, anyway. I know, I know it can be a little, you know, awkward. Here we go. Haman... Is, is so desiring to be honored and privileged and celebrated, and yet his whole life is aimed toward that. And yet in the story, he, I mean, it is, it is marvelous. The king makes him the head cheerleader at the pep rally for Mordecai. <laughs> Haman is planned and arranged and, done, and built these gallows upon which he's going to hang his enemy and you know, glorify the downfall of his enemy. And at the end of the story, he is the one that's hanged on the gallows that he's constructed for his enemy. And then, of course, there's the outcome of the book. In chapter 9, verse 1, that there was a reversal. That word is that the, the irony that happens. That the enemies of the Jews who had conspired against them to destroy them are, at the very end, instead destroyed by them. And so the book really does use this idea of irony. And life is really full of irony. And what we learn through the irony we encounter here and then in the way we might joke about it in our own lives is the truth of Proverbs 19.21 that many are the plans in a man's heart but it is the Lord's purpose that will stand. And so we're being, we're being shown how God's providence works. And the word providence is, is a word that comes, we were talking about this around the table last night at my house, a Latin word which means to see beforehand. It means that God is directly and powerfully involved in even the smallest of circumstances. The Bible says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground and dies apart from God's will, that he knows the number of hairs on our heads, that he sends the rain. Uh, The image in Psalm 147 that he scatters, we don't know much about this in Florida, but he scatters the frost in the morning on a cold day like ashes. That he hurls the lightning to the earth and it hits the mark. God is a crack shot with lightning. The Bible talks this way because it's training us to see God is intimately involved, though sometimes hidden, in all of the circumstances and coincidences of our lives. And really, if you think about the way our culture thinks about this, there are a number of options out there. Option number one would be that really there's just a complete repudiation of this idea that there is really nothing out there that's in control, that we make, you hear this romanticized notion of we make our own destiny, right? It really is our choices and the things that we do in life that matter the most because there is no determinative factor in the universe whatsoever. Or you have this vague and, and again, romanticized notion of fate or destiny, but it's not a person. It's typically something far more sinister. Uh, like in the movie, the adjustment, the Matt Damon movie, The Adjustment Bureau, if you've seen that movie in recent years, which is really a kind of a modern 
contemplation on, on providence in many ways. But in the movie, there are forces at work in the universe, but they're conspiring against us, manipulating things and keeping us from the things that would make us happy. What we don't have in our culture, but what the Bible gives us is this biblical truth that on the one hand, God is in control of all things, even the most ordinary and mundane parts of our life. But on the other hand, he is working all things together for our good, not to keep us from being happy, but to cause us to flourish. Mark Dever, who's a pastor in Washington, D.C., said that Esther is really just an extended commentary on the verse that we read as an assurance of pardon, Romans 8.28. If we know that for those who love God... All things work together for our good. Now, my problem with that is the way we often use that verse. We tend to use the the line, uh, we we use it in the same way we use the line. I mentioned this last week. He's gone to a better place at a funeral to shut down the conversation, right? I much prefer, instead of that, you know, well, God, you know, my life is really hard, but God works all things together for good, and I'm shutting down my heart. I much prefer the old hymn written by William Cooper, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And in a short biography of of Cooper's life, John Piper described it as one long accumulation of pain. Cooper endured a lifelong struggle with depression. He unsuccessfully uh, tried suicide on multiple occasions. And out of his pain, he wrote some of the most beautiful, emotionally honest hymns we have. And probably the most well-known is this hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And here are the lines. It says, God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds, ye so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. And then probably the most famous. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And here's the famous line. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, that last line for me is better than Romans 8.28. And I think it provides the correct summary for the book of Esther, though I'm aware of the way we can use it wrongly too. I like it better because Cowper is quick to admit that life is not all sunshine and unicorns. Right? Life is, life is hard. The sky is often threatening. There are dark clouds and storms. There are funerals and foreclosures. There's depression and divorce. There are plenty of times where life feels like it must have felt like to the Jews in this book of Esther, and it might seem that God has left us and is long gone, but the trick is to look past what Cooper says, or what he calls the frowning providence, to see the smiling face. That's so helpful. So helpful. And you understand what he means. I mean, the reason Paul says so confidently, Romans 8, 28, that God is always at work, even in frowning providences, to do good to us, and is because of what he says just three verses later. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the smiling face. And it's posed as a question, but for Paul, it's not a question. If your faith is in Jesus, you can be completely confident God is for you. God thinks of you and smiles. God thinks of you and smiles because he delights in you. Do you know that? That's what the Bible teaches. His heart is filled with love for you. Do you doubt that? Think about this. When Jesus hung on the cross, the storms gathered around him, the clouds and the darkness and the gloom they surrounded him. The Bible says that the storm, the darkness, was the natural world's reaction to God finally coming in judgment against human sin. And the Bible uses that imagery over and over again. The storm was the physical, historical 
natural frown of God. And Jesus hung there, becoming sin for us, condemned for us, dying in our place. And as a result, he got clouds and storm and darkness. But because he hung there under God's frown, we can have a smile. That's the gospel. And I submit to you that changes the way we live. That every time the storm gathers, every time the darkness descends, we can be confident that behind it there is a smile. God thinks of you and smiles. Hold on to that truth. It's true when things are going well and his blessing is so obvious and real you feel like you could reach out and just touch it. But it's no less true when things are hard and God feels a million miles away. There's a theological truth. Second, the second thing the story gives us is not just the theological truth, but also a spiritual discipline. Because you see, it's not enough to simply affirm God's providence. You have to see it and celebrate it as a way of life. You have to train your eyes to find God's smile in the storm. You have to fill your heart with this truth. Cooper was spiritually astute enough to write, behind a frowning providence, he hides. He hides a smiling face. It's sometimes hidden. And that's the struggle. That's the work, see? Seeing and celebrating God's providence is a way of life. That's the spiritual discipline. And that's what the book of Esther trains us to do. One of the commentators I read this week noted that the way the book is written leads you to scrutinize the text for traces of God's activity. And that's the point. That's the spiritual discipline. That's the way we should live our lives, paying attention to the details around us, living with eyes that are constantly on the look for God's hidden hand behind even the most mundane of our circumstances. To see to really have a, a mechanism for seeing the way God is at work. But not only, not only does the text instruct us to labor to see providences, but also to celebrate them. In chapter 9, there's this great turn of events. In the day had, that, that had been chosen for the Jews' destruction, but instead was a day of victory. And in God's providence, a great reversal occurred. They were spared. Their sorrow turned to gladness, we're told. Their mourning became a holiday. And it was so stunning, it was so overwhelming... It was such a clear, direct move of God to rescue them when they thought he was absent in, in, in a way that they wanted to never forget it. And that's the problem, you know. That all of sin is rooted in gospel forgetfulness. All of sin is rooted in unbelief and gospel forgetfulness. Fear and pride grow in the soil of gospel forgetfulness. And so these people at God's command instituted a yearly celebration as a corporate liturgical reminder of what God had done for them. And it was called the Feast of Purim, which comes from the word that means lot. Haman had cast the lot to determine the day on which the Jews would be destroyed. And so the Jews named the Feast Purim as a reminder, Proverbs 16.33, that the lot, cast, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. In other words, nothing's trivial. Nothing is outside of God's control. There are no coincidences. There are only providences, even the small ordinary, everyday events of our lives are all working together for good. And that's why a huge part of Israel's religious life were the feasts they celebrated. Now, hear hear me when I say this. Partying was a spiritual discipline to them. You can quote me on that. A good party is a powerful spiritual experience. Right, all the introverts in the room are going, right, all the extroverts are like, woohoo, I knew it. I always knew it. I always knew it. A good party is a powerful spiritual experience. And I don't remember most of the church services I, I grew up going to. But I remember most of the times where we had what we called homecoming. Right? If you're old school like me, you know what I'm talking about. Homecoming was, was uh, it, you know, it, well, 
it was a watered-down, sanctified version of what these people had, and maybe too sanctified because it lost some of its power. For one thing, it only lasted about an hour or so, not two weeks. Shut down the jobs, we're partying for two weeks because God told us to. Does that sound like a good idea to anybody? Right? That's what, that's what this is. I'm serious. And, of course, we had fried chicken and banana pudding, but not, definitely no wine. So, you know, but something similar. And so there's some applications here for us. One is that we need to figure out an approach to life to slow down, to pay attention, to figure out a way to, to see and observe and record the way God is doing. But we also need to figure out institutional remembrances like this Feast of Perm for these people. Hindsight, as they say, is 2020. And that goes for spiritual things too. It's so much easier to look back on the times in your life when, while you're in the middle of it, it was hard to see God's hand at work, but then you come out the other side and it's so obvious... So what we need to do is we need to cultivate habits of remembering. Looking back and seeing God at work when you didn't even know he was at work because looking back at where you've come from helps you to look at what's right in front of you, what you're right in the middle of, and to see more clearly. Remembering the past helps you see the present. Celebrating helps you see. And so we need uh, the spiritual discipline. But the third thing, and then I'm coming to a close, the third thing then is not only is there a theological truth, not only is there a spiritual discipline, but there's also a way of life. This, this text really leads us in consideration of a way of life. And it's probably the most famous part of the story. It's the way the story is moralized anyway, and we need to be careful about that. But let me, let me explain. Most of the people know the book of Esther through Mordecai's words in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 4. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Whether you have come, whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so there have been a million Christian t-shirts printed for, with, for such a time as this on the front. And thousands of women's conferences and summer camps and Disciple Now weekends that have built, been built around this theme. And the reason for this is that Esther's story, and specifically Mordecai's exhortation here and her response, is such a vivid picture, it is, of the life of faith. It's why this, this story is in the Bible. We're meant to imitate her. It was written to Jews in exile who had long ago lost their heart and their hope. And Esther is an example to them of the way that they should all be living. But I think the reason we keep coming back to these words and getting inspiration from them for our own walk of faith is because of the way, I really think there are two things that converge. There really is a sense of calling and courage that converge in this exchange between Mordecai and Esther that are really powerful for us. Calling and courage. And let me explain what I mean by that, and then I'm done. On the one hand, what we learn from this book is that God is always at work. That This is the backdrop, if you would allow that metaphor, of this entire story and, and this conversation also. Mordecai says, look, God is at work. He's going to save his people. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know through whom, but deliverance will come. And Esther, if not through you, then from some other source. And so there's this kind of, God is always at work, okay? God is always doing, he's always doing a thousand things. We may know three, everywhere, all the time, unseen, in the tiniest of details. God is always at work. But against the backdrop of that, that idea of God being always at work, there are, there are often times where we have to wrestle through, often God has a specific work for each one of us to do. So Mordecai sees beyond the general notion of God's working to the idea of the specific work he has in mind for Esther. All of the coincidences Mordecai begins to put together 
are not coincidences, but providences. He begins to connect the dots, and he says, you know, this is your time. This is your moment for such a time as this. All that God's been doing throughout your entire life and the thousand details that have brought us to this place, this moment, this work, you at the king's right hand in the palace, this threat that's been put against your people, all of this has come for this moment. And that's what what we mean when we use the word calling. There's a difference between preaching and being called to preach. And you sense the difference. There's a, call, there's a difference between waking up and going into work and being called to your work. And though, hear me, we would say that there are times when you just have to go to work and get gutted out and do it for God's glory or to provide for your family, whatever it might be. But beyond that, what each of us should be constantly on the lookout for is the work, the assignment, the calling that makes sense of the way that God has been working in our lives all along. For every one of us, There should be a, for such a time as this, sense of purpose or divine moment that creates the trajectory for your life. It's what we all want. It's why we keep coming. It's why we keep coming back to this story and to Esther's words for inspiration. Whether you own a business or you're a teacher or you're a stay-at-home dad, whatever you're doing, whatever your work is, you're meant to be doing it with a, for such a time as this, kind of purpose and intentionality. And life should be full of these moments. It's not just a one-time thing. And it may be that you temporarily have to go to a job while you're in pursuit of another calling or that your job, you know, your job is just kind of on your way to something else, whatever it might be. God has a work for every single one of us, a specific work against the backdrop of his always being at work. And therefore, we should be courageous. When they come, when the truth that God is always at work meets with the intuition or the conviction, whatever word you want to use, properly vetted, when the truth that God is always at work meets with the spiritual intuition that there's some particular work that he has for you, that there's a sense of calling on your life, then you meet that call with courage. And that's what Esther does. She says, look, you see that in verse 16? Go, gather the Jews to fast. I will go to the king. Though is it against the law, and if I perish, I perish. It was an incredible act of courage. Because to come before the king without being called was punishable by death. And so remember, the king had already been publicly humiliated by a queen. She's prob- he's probably hypersensitive, and Esther knows this. She knows that the decision to act is at risk of her life, and yet she says, I'll do it, and if I die, I die. I love that. If I die, I die. It's a picture of the kind of faith and courage we are all meant to live with. And so... I read that and I think of a stay-at-home mom I know who was trying to go back to school for nursing and to take care of, um, you know, to have her own kind of thing going and instead chose to stay home and take care of her preschoolers and to support her husband and his work. She had this for such a time moment kind of revelation. She decided to put school on hold and to give all her energy to her family. I think of my friends who are teachers, but for many of them it's so much more than just a job. I think of a friend who is very successful in business and very busy, but he lives with a real sense of for such a time as this because the money is making funding ministry projects and it's a real unique opportunity for him. I think of our core group training meetings in the spring of 2008 before we launched public worship services where we looked at one another and we really did say, okay, for such a time as this, to plant this church. 
And so I wonder this morning for you, what is the work God has specifically for you? What area of life is the place where you've had a, for such a time as this, kind of confirmation of your work? If you've not ever had such thing, ask God to give you one because you need it or you'll flame out. Or worse, you'll be forced to live far away from your heart. You'll shut down, grind through the day. But where you sense a call, where there is a, for such a time as this, hanging over your life, be all in. If you die, you die. But the way you do that is to remember the true hero of the story. And it's not Esther. And it's not Mordecai. The true hero of the story is God on the edges of the story, but fully engaged in the rescuing of his people. And that's where the courage to take risks like Esther comes from. God is always at work. Where I sense that he has a specific work in mind for me, where I, when I lay that on the, the top of the backdrop of his providence, that it fills me with confidence that God will meet me there with all of his power and riches and resources. The Apostle Paul is right. If God is for us, who can be against us? And you might say, but how can I know that for sure? And the way you can know that for sure is that in eternity past, God the Father looked at God the Son and he said, there is no other way. There is nowhere else for deliverance to come from. If you don't do something, they will perish. And the Son didn't hesitate. There was no resignation, only joyful anticipation. He didn't say, if I die, I die. The Son looked at his Father and he looked at us in love and he said, I go to die. And see, if the struggle is to see God's presence in the midst of his absence, to see providence though it be hidden, look no further than the cross, because on the cross, the Son of God himself was forsaken. God was silent. I would submit God has never been further away from any human being in all of history, and at the same time, he's never been more present and active in working salvation than during the hours that Jesus hung upon the cross. And do you know what that means? It means that in the times in your life when God seems most absent, it may be that during those same times he is, in fact, most present and at work. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this great story that you have given to us and how it meets us at such a real place of need in our hearts. We confess to you what the story leads us to confess, that we are so apt and prone to think of life the way these people must have thought of their life, the way the storyteller thinks of the story with you, far on the outside, not even mentioning your name, and we trudge through life, barely giving you a thought, and then when things begin to go badly, we get angry and ask, where have you been? Where are you? Why aren't you doing something to rescue me? Lord, we confess our unbelief, and we pray that you would use this story this morning to teach us this lesson that when you, are, when you seem most absent, often it is that in those very times you are the most present and at work. Heal our hearts of their unbelief, of our pride and our fear. Father, come, because your spirit must do this and remind us of the truth of the gospel and put upon our hearts a sense of the, the sentence that you think of us and you smile. Could it really be true? And indeed it is. And if we could just but grab hold of that truth and carry it close to our chest, it would give us the courage and the strength that we need uh, to overcome the temptations and the trials that we inevitably face on a day-to-day basis. And so, even as we sing now, would you come and whisper, I love you, I love you, I love you. Would we see with the eyes of faith behind the frowning providences that many of us are facing currently and glimpse your smiling face? And would it produce a radiant joy 
and hope in us that would buoy our hearts up against the despair and the discouragement we might be so tempted to feel so that we might be people of courage as Esther was and we might honor and glorify you in the fruit that we bear for your name and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction then uh, knowing that whatever God sends you to uh, and however it might feel like a frowning providence behind it stands a smiling face. That's the promise of this benediction. So uh, receive it in faith. And then go and courage into the calling that he's given to you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.